Hi, my name is Alana Lambert, and my definition of relentless is not expecting change, but not giving up on the idea that change can happen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Relentless Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Dubay, and we have a very cool guest today. We have a UCAN Youth Services Relentless Youth Worker, and I'm so excited to have Alana Lambert, not Lambert. It's Alana Lambert is joining us. Hello, Alana. Hello, Kyle. It's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Well, good. We talked about this, I want to say, two months ago. And I said I wanted to bring some staff on. We've had Sebastian on. Mm -hmm. We've had Darnell. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had one of our young people, Lisa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And oh, I like how you're like, oh, wow, because you obviously didn't listen. Thank you so much (laughs) for being a listener of the podcast. And... So Sebastian and Darnell did unbelievable. So there's no pressure. Great. Okay. Thanks. That's yeah. No problem. You're not I got nervous. This. No, not at all. Okay. I don't get nervous. So here's the thing about Alana is that we are going to talk to Alana about her job and we're going to talk to Alana about the importance of the work that we do and the young people that we work with. And, and, you know, we're not going to go into great details about the young people because we can't do that. Mm -hmm. We don't talk names or anything like that, but we can definitely talk about situations. But the thing about Alana is Alana has quite a story herself. And Alana has had to be relentless in her life in order to get to where she is today. And we will, you will share as much as you want to about that stuff. Sure. Right. Um, So all that being said, Alana Lambert, I'll just call you Alana from now on. That would be great. Um, Who are you, Alana? Where do you come from? Uh, So again, thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, My name is Alana. I grew up in a small town on a way, just outside of the city. Mm -hmm. Outside Um, the city of Edmonton, for those international listeners. (laughs) Yes, outside the city of Edmonton. Um, There I grew up with a lot of family. We lived on one range road and everybody kind of lived on the same range road. So Mm -hmm. we were all very close and connected. Um, I grew up with my mom and my dad and my sister, Megan, and uh, yeah, I had a really great family, a really great upbringing. We did so much together as a family. Mm. We were always outdoors, um, always connecting with other family. We did a lot of camping and quadding and boating and summer holidays and all those sorts of things. Um, And so, yeah, I had a really great upbringing. Um, What did mom and dad do? Okay, uh, so mom is an RN, she's a nurse, Cool. Um, and dad was a finishing carpenter. Cool, so just a very normal family. Yeah, yeah, yeah very normal. Sisters older or younger? Older. Okay. I also have uh, my dad from his prior marriage, I have another sister and a brother as well. Okay, so cool. There's, we were a big family. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and again, like you said, growing up small town, normal, living yeah. life. Yeah, living life. Okay. Loving life. Loving life. great, out in Love the country. And life. Yeah. Then? Then, uh, as I got a little bit older, I never really felt connected to other people that I was around. I always kind of felt black sheep, didn't really fit in with people, got along with my family, but always wanted to be really close to my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of when I started uh, trying out substances. I was pretty young when I started with alcohol and marijuana. How old were you? 13. So yeah. Um, and the progression kind of just went on from there. So Mm -hmm. I 
learned at a young age that substances could numb my pain mm-hmm. and that when I used them, I didn't have to feel like I didn't fit in. I didn't have to feel like I was outcasted or any of those So were things. you feeling that you weren't fitting in at school and your social circles? Uh, it was a little bit of both. So I, it was never that I didn't have friends. I always had friends and people that I was around and acquainted with. But as I got older and I had those friends, I was never a best friend. I never mm. had that relationship that a lot of people have growing up. Um, and then that carried in through high school. I always had friends, but I never really had a best friend. Okay. Um, so that was something that kind of led me to feel like I didn't quite fit in as well. Um, like I said, always connected with my family. So I was always really close to them um, and fit in with them in a sense. But mm-hmm. it was just kind of the outcasting of when I was in high were school. You, were you a good student? Were you... I was a good student up until I started using substances and started to kind of rebel against school and didn't find that I connected with school, found that I connected better with the extracurricular activities that I was doing. Were you, you know, does any of this have to do with being, because you guys lived on an acreage? Yep. So was it like, did you find that it was isolating or did you like, did you have opportunities to be involved in sports or other extracurricular activities? Um, I did because we moved into the city, still kind of country Sturgeon County uh, in grade three. So once I moved into the city, I kind of had more relationships, was able to do more. We did. So dance. when you say the city, where was that? In Edmonton? Sturgeon County. Sturgeon County. Yeah. But Sturgeon so. County is not a city. What are you well, talking about? It's closer to the city. Okay, okay, well, okay. Like, I don't know, city limits, I guess, sure, just outside sure. the city. Yeah, so okay. way closer than Onaway was, yeah, yeah, like yeah, a 15-minute yeah. drive instead of a 45-minute right, drive. Right, so, okay, that's what you mean. To me, that would be yeah, the yeah, city, yeah. I uh, guess. Okay. So then you hit high school, and you were already experimenting. Mm-hmm. You are already dabbling, if you will, in, in booze and weed. Yep. And then? And then uh, the progression just continued on um by the time i was in high school i was using substances um mostly weekends sometimes during the week we would get together and hang out but mostly it was kind of the weekends Mm -hmm. um and then as grade 10 carried on and got connected with more people who lived high risk lifestyles and were a little bit older maybe grade 12 some that had like recently graduated i began to skip school i began to use substances more often uh the bar lifestyle became very quick you know getting into whichever bars we could because we were underage yeah and this, you were going to Sturgeon Comp? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was. Yeah. So. Well, my wife grew up in Sturgeon, so I know. Oh, that. really? Yeah, I okay. know the area a little okay. bit. But yeah. So you obviously then started, maybe it was a false connection, but mm-hmm. you started making connections with these people that were living this lifestyle. Yeah. And now these are your friends. These yes. are the people you're hanging yeah. out with. Obviously, they were detrimental. Mm-hmm. You were probably detrimental in a way as well, right? Yeah, in my own life. Definitely. What was that experience like at that age? Um, so at that age, at that age, it was cool. At that age, using substances and getting involved in that kind of high-risk lifestyle and doing the bad stuff and hanging out with bad people, uh, it was exciting. Mm -hmm. And it was a sense of connection. Mm -hmm. I felt connected to those people. I felt like I fit in with those people. And that was when I really started to think that I had friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking back now, obviously, they were not great friends. But at that time, yeah, that's what I thought friendship was. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And from there on, I kind of just started to get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Those friends that I had turned out not to be friends. And whenever trouble would arise, they would go their way. I would go my way. Um, so then getting out of high school, I was connected to quite a few people that were already graduated or living that lifestyle within the Edmonton area. Um, I moved out of my parents' house. I was not getting along with my parents. Um, they didn't have quite of an idea what my substance use was. I think they knew there was something going on, but they didn't know it was to the extent that it was. So you were hiding it fairly well. Fairly well for the first first couple of years, I would say. Yeah, it was, so great 10, 11? Yeah, great. Well, 10, 11, 12, I think I hit it pretty well. I think it was shortly after high school that they started to see that there was some other problems. Because I was going to ask, like, I mean, the relationship with your parents, you, you talk quite highly of mom and dad, mm-hmm. and you talk that you guys were pretty close. Um, obviously, they started getting concerned and they started looking at things like, because, I mean, behaviors must have changed a bit. I think the behaviors changed, but, and I love my parents to death, but I think the being naive and not really having an understanding and not, you know, having other family members who have gone through it or friends who have gone through it um, and seeing those changes and thinking like, she's just a teenager being a teenager. She's just becoming an adult. She just wants to do things on her own and experiment. Um, Those sorts of things is what I think would have crossed their mind at that Mm -hmm. time. Um, And for myself, if I had never didn't have the experiences that I've had now, that's the way I like to look at things is if I hadn't had those experiences, what would I have thought? Sure. What, how would I have interpreted sure. what was going on? And so that's kind of where I've come up with that. And I have talked to them about it too. And yeah. it's always an interesting, sad, hard conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you're getting to the tail end of high school. Okay. Continue. So, I'm sorry I keep interrupting. I hope you're no, okay with No, no, that. that's okay. okay please. Okay. Um, so after high school, I... Um, got connected and was with a boyfriend that I dated from high school who was not a great influence. Uh, We moved in together. We were using substances. We started with maybe lesser substances such as cocaine um, and alcohol. And that became a weekend, weekendly, then sometimes during the week, then every day. It's interesting you say lesser because when I hear cocaine, I'm like, that's not lesser. Well, in the end, I was using fentanyl and meth. So to me, that is lesser, but that just speaks to the the progression of addiction. Right. Um, So once we were using that, I uh, ended up getting in a quad accident and I Mm. tore my ACL and uh, the doctor had put me on Dilaudid. And so once I was on, started that, it kind of just spiraled. Mm. It was a short amount of time before we were trying heroin and, you know, all those other uh, opiates that we could get. We found a doctor here in Edmonton that would daily prescribe. Um, and so okay, I was, for a what do you mean daily prescribe? So every day he would prescribe like me a for prescription pain? for pain. Okay. Um, he wouldn't give me like a bottle of Dilaudid per se, but every day I would go to the clinic and go to the pharmacy and they would give me my doses for the day. So I think at that time it was... So considered a controlled substance. Controlled, Yeah, yes. you're doing air quotations for yeah. those that are not watching on yeah. YouTube. But pretty uncontrolled. I'm uh, very uncontrolled. The lineup out that door was probably 30 people at eight o'clock wow. in the morning waiting to get their this is a professional drug dealer. Yeah. Oh, it definitely was. Yes. 
were you working at the time? Like, how were you doing this? How were you? How were you paying? You know, when I think of cocaine in particular, like, yeah. it ain't cheap. Like, how are you doing all this? No. Um. So I actually got into working on the pipeline. I was a pipe fitter. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was also a pipe fitter, so he got me apprenticed, and we were working there. So we were making buckets and buckets of money. Wow. Um. But those buckets of money didn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Um. I also had gotten a car accident in two thousand. 2015 and when i was in that car accident they wrote off my car but i got paid back the amount that i had put into my car because my Mm. car was less than 24 months old and so i got a big chunk of money then and he got a big settlement from that as well so we had a lot of money and it all went to our substances we for a while had a place that we were renting which didn't go well obviously because we couldn't pay rent because we were worried about other things and having Mm -hmm. people over and you Mm -hmm. know there's paraphernalia found in the driveway and those sorts of things living the lifestyle Mm -hmm. so then we moved in with my parents Mm -hmm. and that is when my parents really started to see that we were using drugs that we were using substances. What an awakening for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mom's a nurse and I remember her one time coming home. They were on holidays and they came home from a holiday and she found syringes and needles in the kitchen drawer with utensils. And she mm. was like, what is this? And of course we lied through our teeth and, oh, yeah. he's using steroids and, yeah. you know, and so they kind of let it go for like a while. Like do. Yeah. And so I think at that time they kind of started to see that there was more going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved out and, uh, we were couch surfing and you know staying wherever we could we would rent hotels and all of those sorts of things and slept in cars and slept in parks and mm. uh usually had a roof over a head had some support still from mom and dad some support from his parents and then it kind of progressed a little bit more into where we didn't have the support of those people anymore my parents did never stop supporting me but they stopped enabling me sure Um, Huge difference. Definitely huge difference. And so as the time went on, I got deeper and deeper into my addiction. I broke up with a boyfriend. I moved on to new boyfriends and, you know, bigger and better things. Again, those air quotations. Um, But just continuously got into more and more trouble until I started to get into trouble with the law. Hmm. And what drugs were you doing at this time? Like everything? Uh, I was using fentanyl, cocaine, uh, GHB, Mm. All of those sorts of things. I hadn't quite gotten into meth. Meth was at the very end of my substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll call it a career. Mm. Um, but so it was, yeah, pretty much using whatever I could. Uh, and at that point, when my boyfriend and I broke up, we kind of went our separate ways. And that was really hard on me. So I ended up um, thinking what better way to go through with things. And I started injecting. Mm. And so that was when I had a huge decrease in my quality of life, quality of care for myself. And knowing how to even be a human Mm. um so as time went on i was getting more and more in trouble with the law um got pulled over uh one time because they were following us um because the new boyfriend that i had had was in the vehicle with me and they were watching him and we got pulled over and uh, they searched the vehicle and they found substances a lot of substances and was he uh, dealing he was dealing, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we both got arrested. And I remember in that moment, I was so scared and so nervous, but they put us both in the backseat of the car. And he had said to me, it's okay. They're not going to get, you're not going to get anything because this is your first, your first time being arrested, your first descent offense. You'll go in, you'll see the JP and you'll get out. So I was like, okay, cool. That's okay. 
And that's exactly what happened. Mm. I went in, it was freezing cold. I cried the whole time and I asked if I could have a blanket and they pretty much laughed at me because mm. I didn't know I'd never been there. Um, and I saw the JP the next morning and I was released. Mm. What were you charged with? Uh, trafficking. Okay. Yeah. And so trafficking, possession of a substance, um, possession of uh, stolen documents and some other stuff too. Yeah. And so at that time when I got out, I was like, that was scary. Like that was not cool. Like I was just in jail and I had to call my dad from jail. And that mm. was something that was like very tough. Mm. And I thought, oh, that won't happen again. I won't let that happen again. I continued to get arrested six times. Mm. I was looking at a federal stay by the end of it. And, uh, I didn't really care if I lived or died at that time. I was so entrenched in my addiction and so lost in my addiction that I didn't know what the next day would bring and I was okay if the next day didn't come. And that was about the time that I got into Edmonton Drug Treatment Court and that program saved my life. The other times you were arrested, I'm assuming it was similar type charges? Yeah, all the same charges. Did you ever do some some time like how long you know i don't want to trauma slime you no, so please no, if no, i'm asking I'm, anything I'm that very you don't want to talk about you no, just stop I'm very it, comfortable okay? um i the longest i was in for was a month and a half ish okay. and that was over christmas okay. which was also very very hard to spend mm -hmm. christmas in jail um where my parents live they live quite close to the edmonton remand center mm -hmm. and i just remember when i would talk to them my mom would say every time we drive by we wave at you mm -hmm. Sorry, I get emotional with this. No, stuff. that's okay. That's <laughs> um, okay. But we yeah, get some so Kleenex, guys. Then with uh, with that, I would sit and stare out my window and just like think, when are they driving by? What are they doing? And that was I was ready for change, but I didn't know how to make the change because there's not a lot of options for change right. uh, when you're remanded. And so when I got out, I went back to the same thing. I went back to the same lifestyle. I had been set up with this sober living house um, that I was supposed to stay in. It was not a sober living house; it was a trap house. Mm -hmm. And Let's uh, tell people what that is. So a trap house is essentially just somewhere people go to use drugs. Uh, somebody rents a home and they kind of open it up to other users. Uh, a lot of dealers will have trap houses and stuff like that where they have their clientele just sitting in the living room uh, purchasing from them. Um, a lot of people bring a lot of um, not great things in there like weapons and stuff like that sometimes you know you don't know when the cops are going to be knocking on the door or mm -hmm. when somebody else is going to be looking for somebody knocking on that door and breaking the door and coming in so but technically it's supposed to be set up to help it is yeah but, and but the outside forces of the drug world take over it essentially Thanks, and buddy. although it's set up to support people and help people when they get out of jail, um, a lot of those places, they don't have the care yeah. set up or the staff set up to watch those places. So it was essentially an apartment building where all these people who were supposed to be sober went to live, but it was really just a bunch of people getting out of jail who didn't know any different, had no resources, no support. And so went back to the exact system. same lifestyle. Definitely it's a broken, a broken system. system. It's definitely a barrier. You were communicating reach. with mom and dad through this whole time? I was communicating with mom and dad through this time. Um, and I remember my lawyer saying that if I 
accept a drug treatment court and I could just make it to court one time that it would change my life. And uh, so I called my mom and I told her this because this was going to be the the saving grace mm-hmm. compared to all the other saving graces and all the mm-hmm. other times I went to treatment and sought that out. And uh, my mom called my lawyer and she was like, I'm not doing it. Like we've taken mm-hmm. her here. We've taken her there. We've done this. We've done detox. We've taken her to her house. Like we've done all of these things and nothing's changed. Exhausted. So yeah. So why would this be any different? As exhausted as you were as an addict. They were just as exhausted as parents. Just as exhausted, right? Yeah. And and as the pain you were going through as an addict and just as a human being. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like, if I don't get up tomorrow, who cares kind of a deal? Yeah. The pain they were going through as parents, like I'm a parent. Yeah. I, I get like watching your children hurt is like so exhausting. And plus they were trying to help a lot too. Yeah. And then you were, I'm, I hate to say all this, but then you were just like, yeah, I'm going to get better. And then you didn't get better. And right. I had no idea the impact that that was having on my family. Right. Now I understand that addiction is family disease. It mm. doesn't just involve the person who's using the substances. It involves everybody it's around that person. Effect. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in learning that, it was very tough um, to hear about the things that I, to think about the things that I'd done to my family and still something that I struggle with today. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, it took so many years to get to that point and all mm-hmm. that pain. I think it's going to take a lot of years to be able to, move forward from that yeah right where the uh, u2 lyric because i love you too the the ruins to the right of me will soon have lost sight of me like one day they will lose sight of you Mm -hmm. but it's still a ways away yeah right sorry to interrupt the relentless podcast everybody although this is a very good message we want you to go and check out our relentless merchandise store that's right we have launched a merchandise store for all of our relentless garb we've got t-shirts we've got hoodies we've got crew necks we've got hats we've got toques and we're going to be coming out with some more merchandise in the very near future so please www.ucan.ca that's y-o-u-c-a-n.ca when you get to the website you look up to the top right corner i think it says buy our merch Hit that button, boom, it'll take you there. We really want you to wear our stuff. One, because every dollar raised goes directly into our programming for the young people we work with. And two, because it's a conversation starter for you. When you wear it, people are going to go, what's relentless? You can then brag about how you support an incredibly good organization helping young people. And then you can talk about how you are relentless in your life. That's what we want. We don't want us to just be relentless. We want you to be relentless too. Thanks for your support and we appreciate you helping us out. Now, back to the show. So now you get you're at now you're at drug court. Explain what this is. So drug court is a program in Edmonton and actually they have quite a few around Alberta now. Um, it's a restorative justice program for individuals who whose crimes were led by their addiction. So for myself, I committed crimes that I wouldn't have likely committed if I wasn't using substances. I Mm -hmm. used them, I committed crimes to feed my addiction essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So like the theft and breaking and entering and all Mm -hmm. of those sorts of things and the selling of the drugs was all to make money so that I could support my own habits. That's right. So when I got accepted into drug court, the lawyer had said to my mom, if you can just get her here, I promise that this will change your life. And 
So my mom did. And even um, though she was hesitant. She was hesitant. My grace of a mother sat with me in court mm. every week for two months on a Wednesday with me sleeping on her shoulder, listening to this court process and um, making sure I was there so that I had a chance at this program. And I've had an opportunity to talk to the judge who did my, who was the judge when I was in drug court. And she always says to me, and she loves to tell everybody, when Alana came into this program, every day when I would come in on Wednesday, I would scan the courtroom to see if Alana was there because she was so green and so sick and so ill that I didn't know if she would make it back the next week. Because you were coming off the drugs? Because I was still using drugs. I, I used oh, drugs okay. up until the day that I got accepted, or up until the day I started uh, drug treatment court and they put me into detox. I used drugs. So Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yet you were still willing to go and give this a try. I wasn't really willing at that point, I would say. You were either doing this or you were going to jail. It was that or jail. And so I thought it was going to be a get out of jail free card. Interesting. Um, I honestly thought that going into drug court that I would manipulate and kind of just... Like an addict does. Yeah, just slither my way through the program and then I would get out of the program and I would go back to the same lifestyle, same people, same things. I didn't want to change at that point. Because it is pretty incredible um, when you think of addiction in general but we're going to use your scenario where you become a very good liar. Yes. Very good manipulator. But then what I have been talking to so many people uh, throughout the years near the end of their, as you called it career, Mm -hmm. they think they're still a really good liar, but they're actually not. Is that fair to say? That is so fair to say. Because nobody believes you anymore. No. And the things that you come up with, the lies that you come up with are so far-fetched. They're just ridiculous. People are like, that wouldn't even happen. It's impossible. Like, it's not even possible. It's impossible. Right? But yet you are still thinking, oh, they'll believe this. Oh, 100%. Because the desperation is so deeply rooted to get that substance. Yeah. I definitely thought I was a master in disguise, but it turns out I was... And for a while you were. Yeah. And, that's, and that also feeds the manipulation and the lies that that one gives themselves, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. So what what does drug court do? So Because so, you, you said your mom showed up there every Wednesday. You sleep. Like, what are you doing there? What's happening there? Um, so once I was accepted into drug court, they helped me go through detox. They helped me get connected to residential treatment. Um, and then once you're kind of done the treatment portion, um, they do something with you called an eye trip. So that's your individualized treatment plan. And you have to essentially in phases get through all of these sorts of things. So you have like volunteer hours, you have to meet with a psychologist. There's all sorts of programs, um, such as like emotional regulation and uh, like parenting programs for people who are parents and how to control your emotions and all different kinds of programs that you have to attend. Um, And then you move into the next phase. And so during this, you have a case coordinator, there's a manager at drug court, Um, you're working with peer mentors on your steps and that sort of thing through like AA or NA. They're also also very well-rounded with your family. Mm. So it wasn't just them working with me, it was also them wanting to be included with my family and making sure that I was connected to my family as much as I needed to be Mm -hmm. or wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm assuming some people don't want to be. Yeah. You want it to be. Yeah. So it was very client centered, but it was, it's also your, 
bound by the judicial system to complete this program right. instead of going to jail. Right. So I was looking at 36 months in prison. Yeah, which is federal time because yeah. anything over two years is federal yeah. time. And so I was looking at 36 months and in that I got to serve one day time served as my sentence and I did 18 months in Edmonton Drug Treatment Court hmm. instead. So what are you doing it sounds like a, a real wraparound service. Mm -hmm. Definitely is. What What are you doing at that time? Like, are you trying to work? Are you like, how are you supporting yourself? So they get us connected with Alberta Works. Okay. Um, essentially, in the beginning, you're living in a sober living house um, or something of that sorts for people who you know had really stable families. Is it a good sober living house? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's not one. Yeah. Of these trap it's not houses. one of these like houses that are kind of like a trap yeah. house and. Um, I would call those more transitional. Um, but yeah, so you're connected um, to stable living and you've got resources for food and income and all of those things. And then within that as well, um, they don't want you to work right in the beginning mm. because they want you to figure out, you know, to work on yourself. Mm -hmm. So for me, I didn't love myself when I got into drug court, but drug court was there to back me up and love me until I could love myself. Mm. And that's part of the reason that I do the work that I do now is because there was somebody who helped pick me up and empower me and show me that I could love myself. And so I want really want to be that person for somebody else and show that in the work that I do as well. We, we say it, you can, you've probably heard me say before that, that we see in youth what they don't see in themselves exactly. until they do. And that's yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. They saw in you what you didn't see in yeah. yourself until you did. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. Yeah. It's very powerful. And it took about six months, well, maybe four, four to six months for me to realize that I actually thought sobriety was kind of cool I and was, that you were worthy of it yeah and that I still had the people that I didn't think I had in my corner when my parents stopped enabling me I thought they stopped caring about loving me didn't want me you know to be around I couldn't be around certain people they weren't giving me money they were buying me food but they weren't giving me money um, and I didn't realize that that was the enabling part they were paying for gosh like my rent and you know food and all of these other things and mm -hmm. were they actually paying for those things no they were paying for drugs right and so once they stopped enabling me i really felt that i wasn't getting that connection and stuff so at the four to six month mark when the family started to trust that hey you know what this is the longest she's been sober she's coming around she's engaging she's talking to people let's let's keep bringing her around mm -hmm. and so that was when it really started to shift for me that i have this beautiful beautiful life why am I not? Why am I not being a part of it? Why am I choosing mm. these other things? I like the way you said that. Why am I not being part of, of it? Because mm -hmm. it's there. Yeah. But your best friend at that time, your love of your life, that was your addiction. Yeah. Right. Definitely. And that was all that I cared about. There was many times my parents tried to bring me home and, you know, they showed mm -hmm. me love and they showed me care. And my sisters as well, like she showed me love. She showed me care. She brought me into her home, but mm. it was my demon that made them tell me that I had to leave yeah. and that I wasn't welcome around was because very hard on them. Oh, I, yeah. well, I can't even imagine the things. And like I said, that's something that still bothers me today. Sometimes when I'm driving, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I ever said that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I think of things and I, I'm like, how did I ever even think that that was okay? Or how mm -hmm. was I ever that person? Because I am not that person, mm -hmm. obviously, today. So it, it still hurts a lot to think about those things. 
Then in lots of ways, I mean, not to to take away from that behavior, those things, but that that wasn't who you were at the core of who no. you were. That was the addiction. Yeah. Right. I always said I had a demon living inside me, and that was definitely the demon. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then what are you doing during those 18 months of drug court like oh gosh everything um so they do eventually want you to find work or go back to school and do those sorts of things but there's so much programming Mm -hmm. um that you're doing in that time that your schedule is full you Mm -hmm. have something every day um the first few months of drug court you have to do a urine sample every day Mm. you have to go to the office every single day they have a phone line that you have to call the phone Mm -hmm. and uh if your color back then was called now they do phases but if your color was called you had to make it down to the court or down to the drug treatment court program by a certain time Mm -hmm. and you had to do your test massive accountability here such huge accountability and that program is known for accountability and not only accountability to them but accountability yourself and accountability to the justice system as well because every every week you're going to the courthouse and you are speaking in front of a judge Mm -hmm. and you are telling the judge what you've done that week what's worked for you what Mm -hmm. hasn't worked for you and you know these judges are such amazing people because they're a lot of times you know they're they're the ones to put down the law and in this sense they're there to put down the law as well but they're also there to build relationships and show the people who are in drug court that they're not they're to humanize them essentially I and, love that word. Yeah. I love the word humanize. Yeah. And with police as well. Like mm-hmm. we had a liaison that would come in and she would bring the dog and come and sit and just chat with people in mm-hmm. the front office. And it's building those connections. That, it was also helping you humanize police. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which I think is something that we do in our everyday work as uh, well here. You can so, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Then you graduated. I graduated. Yes, I graduated in May of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started going back to school. So mm-hmm. I went back to school for social work. And uh, I also got invited to work at Drug Court as a mentor, uh, as a peer support worker, and to mentor people who were coming into the program. So I started doing that. And, and that's a volunteer thing or a paid thing? No, that was a paid thing. Cool. And then through that mentorship with Edmonton Drug Treatment Court, I also had the opportunity to meet John Huntley. Mm-hmm. And that was when I started working with Edmonton Police Services as a mentor with them and the Y50 program. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I I continued to go to school. I got my diploma uh, in social work, and then I had my practicum with Y50 and EPS, and that's what led me to you guys here at UCAN. Mm-hmm. And now, just recently in September, I started doing my degree program for social work. So mm. I am the first semester in on that, and just going forward. Okay, good podcast done. All right, <laughs> yeah, story <laughs> over. That's it. Life, life there, story, boom, and uh, what was that? Life is story, and everything's great. <laughs> Uh, this is the uh, second time that we have brought John Huntley up uh, on the podcast recently, and I don't like it. Oh, okay, I don't That's like fair. it. Uh, Old Englishman. Uh, is he though? I think it's a fake accent. But okay. um, <laughs> could be, could be. <laughs> let's talk about Huntley. Huntley's an amazing guy. We were, but I've already pumped his tires on here. I don't want to pump him up All too right. much, you know. But we can at, we can push him aside. At the end, no, we can't because Huntley's relentless. He is relentless. Huntley, uh, John, Johnny, I call him Johnny. Um, he deeply cares about the people that he works with and yeah. that I'll say that he works for mm-hmm. because those young people, I mean, you know, at a time, like the whole Y5 O list was his. Yeah. Nobody else. Yeah. Him. That was when I started mentoring there. <laughs> right. That was him. Yeah. And now we have five youth workers that help. Yeah. Right. Like 
it's just crazy to yeah. think that he was running around that <laughs> much. very resilient. So when I was hanging out with him and getting to know him was in, in the fall of 2019. I already knew him a bit before that, but then him and I did a trip to Boston together. And, and uh, anyways, we don't need to talk too much about him, but he I know he was a big influence in your life. And, huge, and, yeah. and he really was helpful to you. Mm -hmm. and, and a huge advocate for me and my story. And yes. He was one of the people, and there's many people that I could shout out on here, mm -hmm. um, but he was one of the people who really pushed forward for me to, you know, apply on even this position mm -hmm. and um, the importance of sharing my story um, and not just my story of my experiences, but my story of hope. Right. And so he's been a big, a big part of my journey as well. So. Let's talk about that before we get into your job. Uh, why why is it important to share your story? Uh, I think it's important to share my story because I feel that if I made it through, then other people can make it through too. And when you're so entrenched in your substance use and your addiction, um, like I said, you really feel like nobody loves you, nobody cares about you, you're stigmatized, you're judged, all of these things. Um, and you don't feel connection to anything. Mm. And so except the addiction, except the addiction. Yeah. And so once you finally are able to get past that little bit and get that little taste of connection or, um, being able to be a little bit vulnerable and sh open up a little bit and share, it brings you to a point where I forgot the question, Kyle. <laughs> Why is it important to share your story? Oh, um, yeah, it just, it brings you to a point where you, feel that maybe there's something else out there and if I can go out and share my story and of how I got into my recovery and was able to use every bad thing that's happened to me and every sad feeling and emotion that I had and make somebody realize that they can also change their life that's a huge huge impact for me and I think with sharing stories I think people don't realize that they're not as unique as they think they are. Mm. I think we all think that we're very unique in our addiction and that mm. it's only happened to us. And once you're able to open up and start sharing a little bit and find out that everybody who is stuck in their addiction mm. has certain things. Mm. Most of us have trauma. Uh, I, uh, I, I, two things I'm taking from what you just said. One, it's a beautiful attitude. Like Alana, it's, it's the definition. Uh, I believe that, that as humans, we either think or, or or do like in it's inwardly or outwardly mm -hmm. right now we have to have inwardly things we have to you know we have to think about ourselves sometimes we have to, to to do things for ourselves but i do believe that to live our best lives we have to be outwardly more than inwardly that's my take that's exactly what you're talking about mm -hmm. is taking that bad and using it for good mm -hmm. right um and i love that that you know, and I would say most addicts, and if you don't mind me using the word in recovery, mm -hmm. um, do get to that point where they're like, oh, I'm not a freak. Mm -hmm. I'm not that unique. Yeah. People that go through this. And I've experienced that in my life um, where we do believe as humans that, oh man, what we're going through is the worst thing in the history of the world. And you know what? At that time it is. Mm -hmm. I will never take that away from anybody. But as time goes on and as you're moving forward, you start to go, oh, others have been through this. Yeah. And now I'm hearing other stories and I'm hearing, and I can relate to this. And mm -hmm. oh, that's exactly the way I felt in that moment. And we're not that unique. We are not that unique. But yet we are incredibly special. Mm -hmm. 
that's the way that I see it. Yeah. And I think everybody has parts of their stories that are different and unique mm-hmm. to their themselves. That's right. But also in the grand scheme of things, a lot of the same things led mm-hmm. to our addiction mm-hmm. and we did a lot of the same things during our substance use and addictions and, you know, those things carried forward and led into the next and into mm-hmm. the next. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't all start out doing crime. And I can tell you that when I was a kid, I didn't think, hey, you know what? I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a fentanyl user. Right. Like that was not in the plan. Yeah, they weren't the goals. Yeah, they weren't the goals. goals. No, it wasn't the goals, but that's where I ended up. Right. And right. that's. I, would, I don't regret any of my past. I don't regret any of my story because my story is what, led, what has led me here and yeah. I get to use my, my story for the most powerful reasons yeah. and that's changing lives. It's, I like how you said, the, the back to the uniqueness, is that we're not unique yet our stories are unique because they're ours, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I agree with that. I, I think dealing with any type of major relentless pressure in your life mm-hmm. um, everyone's going to do it differently, but there are so many commonalities in yeah. it. That's kind of how we'll end that part of it. But um, mom and dad must have been just thrilled on graduation day though. They are. Yeah, they were. Um, my graduation was very tough. It was very tough to get through. It was so emotional hmm. and I never thought that I would stand on at that podium in a courthouse for a positive reason. Right. And I well, got Because when you think of that, it's not typically what no, the courthouses are for. No, exactly. Right. And um, standing up there, they have, you know, all the people who've worked with you. So your mentors and your caseworkers and all of those people get to stand up and share a little bit about you. And then the judge shares about you. Mm. And that again was that time when the story was told of, I was so green in the courthouse. They didn't know if I was ever going to make it back the next week compared to this person that was now standing in front of everybody and has this amazing story and this amazing journey. And, the, and they want to offer a job to mentor others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And you became, so, you became a star. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I received a diploma and my mom got up and spoke and, you know, she was very emotional. My other family couldn't get up and speak because they were emotional and the courthouse was full. The courthouse was full of people who have supported me through this journey and only wanted the best for me and loved me until I could love myself. Mm. And that was so powerful. I'm for just me. trying to uh, imagine this and, and you going from nobody loves me because they won't give me money mm-hmm. to a room full of people who love and adore you Yeah, going, no, we love you, Alana. Yeah. We just, we love you so much yeah. that we couldn't give you yeah. that money anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Thank you. The Relentless Podcast is brought to you by You Can Use Services, which I am very proud to be a part of. You Can Use Services is an organization that helps young people move out of harm's way and onto a path of economic independence. If you want to learn more about the incredible work that we do with some very vulnerable young people, please go to www.youcan.ca. That's www.youcan.ca. Then we put a post, you can use services, put a posting out for a relentless youth worker. And I get a, a phone call from Mr. Johnny Huntley. And I'd already heard of you okay. through Michelle Fillion and John. And John's like, I got the perfect person. And I'm like, oh yeah, John. <laughs> and then you come in. We do a great interview. Yeah. And because I knew a little bit of your story and a little bit about you, you we talked about you in the interview, actually, and you were pretty open about stuff. Um, 
that was very impressive to me because you don't have to, you don't listen. I mean, it's not like we did any, we weren't asking, the interview was done. Mm -hmm. And then you told us a bit more about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you as an employer and as someone who hires youth workers, um, part of my job, (laughs) not, I'm not a huge believer that you have to have lived experience in what our young people go through to relate to our young people. And I'll tell you why I'm not a big believer in that, that that has to be the way it happens is because I don't have your lived experience. Yeah. And not to sound goofy, but I was a really good youth worker back in my day when I was young and I could move and I, (laughs) and maybe young people thought I was cool. Uh, At least I thought I was good. And I, I really knew, and I think I still know how to engage young people. You know, and because my attitude has always been, you need to meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. That's it. Don't expect them to meet where we're at because it's so unfair. Yeah. And it's just kind of dumb to be honest with you. So when we hire youth workers, I'm really looking for that. But I will say the lived experience piece, it made sense to me. It got you. Well, it made me real. Like I've had other people work for us. Uh, with lived experience and they do a great job they do a great job i guess what i'm trying to do is make the people without lived experience that work for us feel better about themselves but this really does help you understand and connect with the young people you work with talk about that a little bit it does um even for the young people that i we work with i don't feel that i have a lot of connection because i didn't start i do have a lot of connection sorry but not in maybe the same ways that they do for starting i don't know okay i'm glad we're bringing this up so now i'm going to interrupt you again because your story you know your story is a little bit unique not totally unique Mm -hmm. you when people think of at-risk youth what do they think of they think of inner city they think of poverty they think of massive dysfunction they think of violence they think of abuse yeah the most horrific things that can happen to a young person which by the way listeners most of our young people have been through that stuff you hadn't been no so that's where i say my connection is a little bit different with working with these youth Mm -hmm. because they have been through a lot of them have been through a lot more trauma and stuff as a child growing up where i didn't have that um, you had self-inflicted trauma, though, that you can yes. reflect to, right? Yeah. And then the, the criminality stuff. Yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Um, and the older I got, the more, the or sorry, the farther I got in my addiction, the more trauma I occurred, like, mm-hmm. incurred. Like, it was just, you know, every day there was something bad that was happening that was mm-hmm. like, oh, gosh, I really got to figure that out. And, you know, it took me a really long time with working with my psychologist to become comfortable with who I was as a person because of the things that I had done. Yeah. And so I think with connecting with the youth, I do have that experience of understanding what it feels like to feel unloved, not to feel welcome, not to feel um, like you're worth anything. And so in that sense, I think I can really connect with them, maybe not with their families and their family experiences and stuff like that. But I can definitely connect with them on the level of, you know, wanting to numb pain, wanting to um, escape from whatever they're going through. Um, a lot of times, you know, they just need connection and just want to connect with somebody. And in this job now, um, as more of a youth worker, I don't share my story mm-hmm. with youth as I did when I was a mentor. Right. Um, I very much keep 
it in my back pocket if there was ever a time of, oh, you don't understand. You don't get it. You're never going to get it. Like, I don't want to see you. I could bring that little piece of, you know, I do get it. Mm -hmm. I do understand. I do have a little bit of experience in this. And, you know, I'm haven't had to use it yet. And, you know, I hope that I don't. I hope I can continue to connect with the youth on a level where I don't need to pull that out of my pocket, but it's always there if I do need it. It's a good card to have. It's a good card. It's a good card to have. And and I think one thing that you bring to the game is that you do have that under, especially with the courts. And because again, the Y5 O list for people that don't know are the, the top 50 highest, most vulnerable, highest risk young people in the city of Edmonton, according to police data. Mm-hmm. So they have a list. We, and it's actually, it's about 75 of them actually. They call it Y5 O, but now we've also got Y5 O spiking, another 15 to 25 young people after those 50. The list changes yearly. Some young people go off, some young people come on. These are all um, technically 13 to almost 18, yeah. right? 17, 364, because when yeah. they turn 18, technically they're not supposed to be on there. Um, these are some 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 tough young people. They've been through a lot. Yeah. And I know like you, like we love them, mm-hmm. right? Like, because they're awesome. They are. They're great. They're awesome. They they're have huge people. potential. Yeah. And I think what you're doing is what we talked about earlier. You're seeing in them. What they don't see in themselves until hopefully they do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I definitely think being able to see those little bits and, you know, a lot of times when we start working with youth, they, for lack of better words, they hate you. They don't want to see you. They don't want to work with you. And then all of a sudden you go and you pick them up one day and they get in your car. we are relentless. We are relentless. And they get in your car and they say, how's your day? And you're like, wow, Mm -hmm. did they just ask me how my day was? Like this is, it's those little wins. And I think as youth workers, we see the little wins before we see the big change. And for me going through my substance use issues and stuff like that, that was something again, that I didn't see for myself. I didn't see the little, the little things. Everybody else saw the little things and, oh, you're doing so great and you're doing so good. And I was like, meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you guys are dumb. Like Mm. I'm going to get out of this program and I'm going to go back to the same lifestyle and do whatever. And these kids might think that too. Like, you know, they're going to go and they're going to do the same thing as soon as I drop them off. But it's those little little fleckles that kind of come out and then the next time they're in trouble they call you and you know they want to talk about it or they want support or they want to go back that to relationship school. though right and we'll yeah, go back to the car yeah. i've always said like uh you know when, when we're dealing with with these young people a good example of being relentless is because because folks you got to remember these young people it's not mandated no they are not forced to work with no. us um, they're referred to us by Edmonton Police Services, yeah. and our job is to build relationship with them. Yeah, and it takes some time. It definitely does take time. But we go back, and we go back, and we go back because we are relentless. Yeah, and I, I've always the way I explain it is, you know, first time you meet young people, they might tell you to f off. Yeah, and you go, hey, they're talking to me. <laughs> right on. Yeah, you said you said a word to me, <laughs> and then you go back and they say it again. You go, they're still talking yeah. to me, and um, then you go back, and then I love how you said, but then when they get in the car. Because even as a parent, to me, the best conversations I've ever had with my in kids, the vehicle. best conversations I've had with young people for the most part, sit in a car because they, they got nowhere to go. Yeah, exactly. They, they kind of can't escape, you know? Lots of times they want you to turn on the music and they just stare out the window. But sure. you know what? But for the first there. couple times, that's that's great. And all of a sudden they turn and they go, how are you today? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. you almost thing. don't know how to respond because <laughs> right. you're so happy. Yeah. You don't want to just smile and turn off that but relationship. That's you care. But, yeah, that's because you is. care. 
And you know, it's something, and I've said this in the office to the other relentless team and, you know, wake up in the morning and you really have no idea and no expectations for what's going to happen that day, but you just hope that you can make some sort of relationship or or build some sort of relationship and make some sort of positive influence in somebody's life that day. Hmm. And those are usually the days that they all cancel and you sit in the office all day. It's a cool way to to wake up every day and there's ups and downs in this job like you said young people cancel there's ups and downs yeah. there's there's three steps forward five back yeah. there's that's the way it goes i mean yeah. you literally this morning were at court mm-hmm. like you're at court yeah. a lot right yeah. you um all the different what, what what does a typical day look like for you when you're supporting a young person uh so it kind of just depends on the young person um and what their goals are and what kind of support they're looking for um i <laughs> Yesterday, baked cookies with a young girl because she's just seeking. (laughs) She's seeking relationship and friendship, and she has a really hard struggle with that and building relationships with people at school. So, you know, if I can go there and be there to bake cookies with her, and that puts a smile on her face and makes her have a good rest of her day, then gives you opportunity to talk. Yeah, and that's great. And then, you know, others, it it is supporting with courts and not having an understanding of what's going on at court. Um, There's sometimes lots of language barriers. And so people are going to court and expecting things to happen and it's getting adjourned and put over and stood down and they don't know what those things. All that court talk, that court jargon. Yeah, and they have no idea what it means and their parents have no idea what it means. And then they go home and then the next day at court is the exact same thing and they're just confused. And that was my situation today is the young person I was working with said to me in the elevator, like, what is going on? Yeah. I just want to deal with this. And I've been coming to court for two months and nothing's been done. Right. And so being able to explain those sorts of things, um, and building that relationship with the family as well, not just with the young person that we're working with, but having a well-rounded connection with the family and, you know, being well, they welcome me into their home mm. and, you know, sit on the couch and mm. those sorts of things. And it's those sorts of trust. Yeah. Trust and building those relationships. That's really beneficial. Um, we work a lot with, you know, youth want to get their ID and their um, driver's licenses and learner's licenses. And there's so many barriers to that. If you don't have identification or a birth certificate, those are all kind of out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh with jobs and job opportunities as well. If you don't have ID, you can't get a job. If you don't have a SIN number, you can't get a job. And like we had said, there's so many barriers within the families of youth maybe not connecting with their family or knowing where their mom is or their dad is and not being able to obtain a birth certificate for that reason. So there's so many barriers that we try to kind of work around. And then we also get to do fun stuff. If they want to go for a walk in the park or they want to go to a festival and check it out or go to the Telus World of Science, we can do those things as well. you You mean if they want to be a kid? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. If they right. want to just live life on life's terms, like yeah. that's what we're here for. We're here for all of it. So yeah. how many young people did you have on your caseload? I have 15. 15. <laughs> yes. Now, not to take away from 15. Johnny used to have 15. Okay. Okay. Back um, to Johnny. But you have 15. That's 15 lives yeah. that you are working on impacting. That's mm-hmm. a lot. It's a lot. And, and my hope is that um, we're going to be bringing more youth workers on. Yeah, I was just going to say you we know? have all the other relentless team. Yeah. You know, Kaylee, Neve, Masoka, Rob, and we're Look all. Look at you dropping names. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. They're we're a great team. We're all doing the same thing, and you know what? We've all talked about it. We get along so well together yeah. in the back office, and it really makes it a great place to come to work. And we can collaborate with each other. And if we don't know one thing, you know, somebody in that office has an idea on how to help the young person. Yeah, absolutely. If I can't drive somebody to court, somebody else is available to pick them it, up. It's, like, a, it's we a great just, team. Yeah, it's we a great work great team. together. And so. you guys meet regularly. You meet regularly with the police. Yeah. We work closely with the police. Let's we talk do. about that yeah. a little bit, right? Um, it's such an important relationship because these young people are all associated or all are, are part of the 
the the justice system and they are dealing with the police and lots yeah. of them don't like dealing with the police i also did not like dealing with the police right. and two really quick scenarios i got to sit in the back of a police car and i was let out second of all i had a police officer sit in the back of my vehicle and i got to drive them somewhere and that was insane <laughs> so it's kind very awesome. well kind very well awesome. rounded but yeah our youth are definitely afraid you know there's so many mm -hmm. stories and there's so many situations where they're taken down by police or had mm -hmm. bad interactions with police the police that work with y50 and 180 are not those same police that have taken them down on mm -hmm. the streets and i think the police that we work with work so hard to build those connections humanization humanization yeah they're still there um to do suppression when it's needed mm -hmm. but you know they're playing clothes they're taking them out for lunch they're connecting with them they're showing up for them building relationships. yeah and that's the biggest thing and i think too that a lot of the young people that we deal with within our organization within this program in particular their first interaction with police was potentially when they were toddlers and they saw police show up to their home to arrest somebody or to take a sibling away or it was it would have been a negative situation for them that yeah. that's where a lot of trauma started yeah. for them right and that's the conversations they hear from their families and their exactly. friends is cops are bad cops yeah. are hate bad the cops police. are bad hate the police yeah. right and yeah. And I love that this program is humanizing and it's also humanizing these young people to the police, yeah, which is definitely. important, right? Yeah. You're doing an exceptionally great job. You Thank really you. are. I love that you're part of this team. I love that the Relentless team is tight. They're good. Yeah. They're, they're all amazing like you. And I think that what you are all doing with these young people is, is just making such a difference. You had a time in your life uh, where you did not feel worthy of anything. Mm -hmm. And I believe that most of the young people we deal with, because I actually think it's very humanistic, addiction mm -hmm. or not addiction, yeah. that we go through times in our lives where we don't feel worthy. And we've, you know, and I would suggest that many of our young people do not feel worthy. Definitely. But we see in them what they don't see in themselves until they do. Yeah. And we've seen some incredible success and in your short time at UCAN, you've seen some incredible mm -hmm, success definitely. and we will continue to see incredible success. Let's be honest. We also see some that do not succeed, yep. which is heartbreaking. It is very heartbreaking, but I believe that's where the relentlessness comes in. Yeah. We can brag about all of our stats. We can brag about all of our success, but what about the ones that aren't? What about the ones that for lack of a better phrase are left behind or, mm -hmm. A lot, you, I mean, that's all kind of self-inflicted on their yeah. end, yeah. right? But I think the more we show up for them, the more they show up for themselves. Right. If we continue to show up and, you know, make that phone call every week, every couple of days, hey, just checking in, how you doing, sending yep. those text messages, connecting with family, maybe building the relationship with the family or a guardian mm -hmm. before you even connect with the child sometimes mm -hmm. um, can be a way to kind of navigate and get in there uh, in order to be seen at the home sure. or you know the parent to say like hey you know alana stopped by again she was looking for there's you there's nothing like a nagging parent to mm -hmm. tell you to hang out with someone and i know this because my mom uh nagged me and nagged me and nagged me when i was in grade 12 to hang out with a youth pastor mm -hmm. i was like get law like yeah <laughs> not I mean, we went to church and stuff but i wasn't too into it well you know what that guy helped that guy helped change my life yeah because finally i went whatever mom i'll do it that was it. Yeah. We had a we had a hangout. Then he's taking me for lunch or something. I'm in his car and I can't get out. And he's talking <laughs> to me. And, I, and then you know what? I went, oh, he likes you too. Oh, gosh. And that, But you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden there was this connection to this 
person who and boom it, yeah. it, it did and it, it changed flourished, my life right? yeah it, it changed my life and yeah that's i totally believe in that sometimes mm-hmm. they might not see it for a really long time and you know it was like sobriety for me i had little tastes of it here and there and i didn't know how to obtain it and once i learned to obtain it i full, fully grasped it but mm-hmm. every time there was a little bit more just a little bit a little bit more insight on that was actually what i wanted i just didn't know how to get there and so i feel like with the youth we do that as well you know they they see us they hear from us and uh we kind of just continue on and be relentless in trying to reach them and trying to support them until they're ready for our sport i love what you said earlier that you get to see the little wins before the big change happens mm-hmm. or before Definitely. like you know so so for example me i, I see the big change mm-hmm. because i'm not on the ground level with you yeah. guys and yeah. and um uh, part of me gets jealous sometimes i miss it because those little wins you are so be amazing. I am it's jealous. amazing to see. It is amazing to see, and 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 those little wins are incredible. I used to experience it all the time, right? So I love that attitude, though, because mm-hmm. all, all those little wins are what brings the championship. Yeah, you exactly. know, which is the big change in yeah. someone's life. Alana, this has been a really cool conversation. Uh, we've talked for almost an hour. Wow, goes by fast. I didn't, I didn't think I would make an hour. Yeah, <laughs> we. I think we could go for two, three. I can talk about things like I love what I do, so it's not hard to talk about. I love what you do as well, and I'm so thankful that you are part of the You Can Use Services team, or what? What do you young people call that? What is it called? A squad. A squad is that still a word that you kids use? Um, I say kids because you're younger than me, way younger. <laughs> I don't know what you guys. Use. I think we call ourselves a team. You guys, okay, we're, we're a good. team. I just want to be hip, Alana. I just <laughs> you want, know to, what? I want to okay. fit in. I want to fit in. The older you get, the farther you get away from that hipness. So it's, oh, it's okay. You are a little lippy, and that's <laughs> that's okay. Alana, since you have literally never listened to the podcast. I did. I listened to two yesterday, Kyle. Oh, just to get prepped? Yeah. Which one do you listen to? I listened to The Police, and I listened to Darnell. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, so I'll yeah, to Sebastian cause, yeah, next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yesterday was we had uh, the, the Y50, some of the Y50 We actually on. listened to it as a group, a team in the relentless office nice i'm glad i paid you guys for that are you kidding me (laughs) it was lunchtime well i'm thinking about five people doing this (laughs) hourly (laughs) you want us to listen to the podcast on your own time thank you very much right carry our work i'm such i see see. i'm so desperate for people to like this podcast that i maybe will set it up so that weekly we will sit all 20 (laughs) staff and i will pay everybody to sit and listen to the podcast but i'll make everyone download it so we get good numbers you want to know what kyle i have yeah. never listened to a podcast in my life oh so these were I the first good. two podcasts good. that i've ever listened what did to you think? i really thought they were actually very inspiring there you go and it made me want to listen to more podcasts okay so maybe so maybe at, the relentless will be other people <laughs> no <laughs> well that too uh, i think oprah has a good one i don't know okay we and then if you've listened to two podcasts you know that we end with the relentless quiz i do yeah i studied the quiz oh my god i'm gonna get 100 percent. oh my gosh but i also just finished school so if we can just make it snappy okay let's go boom boom you ready (laughs) alana lambert yes lambert lambert not a lambert (laughs) still lambert still lambert okay fruits or vegetables Uh, i eat more vegetables but i like fruit better okay skewing the test a bit because mm. you basically said both <laughs> city or countryside countryside okay dirty bathroom or dirty kitchen dirty bathroom gross salty <laughs> <laughs> salty or sweet uh sweet okay morning or night 
Morning. So what time do you get up? Um, 7.30. Okay. <laughs> so <it's> <laughs> but, but I'm in bed by 10, so I can't say I'm a night okay. person. Okay. I prefer the That's morning. I do my best work in the morning. You're in bed by 10. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Auntie. <laughs> you call me old. <laughs> Jeepers. Yeah, sorry. Uh, favorite comedy movie? Uh, I'm going to go with Elf. Hmm. Yeah. Second time today because I record really? more than one podcast in a day. Oh, yes. wow. Really? Okay. It must be this, the time it's of year. It's the time of year. Yeah. Elf is the movie. Unbelievable funny. Like, it's so good. <laughs> it is so I love good. Will Ferrell, though. Yeah, he's pretty him. funny. Uh, big party or small gathering? Um... Dude, that's a tough one. Because mm-hmm, you're a dancer. <laughs> I am a dancer. Yeah. I, I like I to dance. I, I like to this. dance. Um, I would say small gathering, depending how... What's small? I don't know. Like 7,000 like people. Small is like 10 sure, to 14 let's, let's and call, large is over? I'm going to say 10 to 13. Okay, yeah. I'll go small gathering. Okay. That's about but The reason I know is. you're a dancer is because at our celebration of success, you were up there dancing. And apparently last Friday after our Christmas party, when everyone went out, you I were did. dancing as well. Yeah, I did. It Which was I love. You fun. know what? When I actually had good mobility, I love dancing too. Me I too. My parents at weddings were the last people on the dance floor everywhere. They I love loved it. it. So I yep. love dancing too. I really enjoy I it. Young. It's a good thing. Dance like no one else is watching. And sometimes well. I do do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Okay. I'm a good chair dancer now. A I chair got a good dancer, rhythm. that's fair. In your vehicle. Good, yeah. Just or even right music, here. I'm just dancing right now. I wish we had some tunes on right now. Phone in the bathroom or no phone in the bathroom? Phone in the bathroom. And if I don't have it, I'm upset. Give me one of those. People lie about this. They're like, oh, no phone in the bathroom. It's oh. a lie. Everyone does it. It's where I, I say it all the time. It's where I watch TikTok. Okay, you're a TikToker. Uh, I'm a I'm a consumer of TikTok. A consumer, okay. I don't have a TikTok. Okay, fair but enough. I'm a consumer. Uh, yeah, see, I'm hip. I watch TikTok. <laughs> Favorite. I feel like that's what old men say to try and be hip. Okay, don't call me an old man. What is wrong with you? Seriously. Stop trying to say like, you're hip. What? I'm not trying to say I'm hip. I say I'm trying to be hip. Well, like, what is it? What is old to you? You're not old. Okay, well, I don't what think is you're old. old to you? Uh, like 80s. Okay. 80s so is thank old. you very much. Because I don't want to die young I'm 50. old. I'm so. 50. Okay. Yeah. So that's not old. That's not old. It's getting there. I know It's that. on the cusp. It's on the you're cusp. You're over the hill. Good Lord. You, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry. There's people who are going to listen. They're going to love this. <laughs> They're going to love that you're just chirping me. And I love it too. I think it's awesome. Because we are a bit of a chirpy group. Oh, very much so, can. yeah. We are. And that, I think that's trickled down from me because I chirp everybody. I think we get comfortable. Yeah, probably too comfortable. Maybe. Maybe, but anyways, because you're going to get in trouble with HR. <laughs> Great. I feel Great like this. I feel the ageism happening right now with the way you're treating I me. just told you old was 80. I'm, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> anyways. Favorite love song of all time? Uh, Brooks and Dunn, Red Dirt Road. I don't know. Can you sing it? Uh, no. Okay. Absolutely I not. I ask people to do that. Uh, Terrence, one of the cops started singing I know. last I, night, yeah, which is hilarious. That was, that was awesome. Terrible voice. <laughs> um, so Brooks and Dunn. So you're, cause you like the country music? I'm into the country music. Uh, yeah. Country lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> on away. On my way and on away. did I think? On away, Alberta. Uh, last two questions. Cake or pie? Uh, pie. Alana Lambert, mm-hmm. describe your relentless podcast experience in four words. Great experience with Kyle. <laughs> you practiced. You totally practiced <laughs> this. 
That was really nice. <laughs> You're welcome. Of you. Thank you. <laughs> no, it was really Alana, great. Um, we, uh, I, 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 what am I trying to say here? I think that in your shorter time with UCAN, you have come to the realization pretty quick that we are a, a, an organization who at times, like we have a lot of fun, a mm-hmm. lot of laughs, a lot yeah. of chirps. Uh, you now know that I am an executive director who does not take himself seriously, but I take this work so seriously. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of this team, this squad, if you will, at UCAN, that we have fun. We don't take ourselves super seriously. But we take the work ultra seriously. Definitely, yes. What you folks are doing in Relentless, incredible. Um, when I think of the team, um, incredible. It's a variety of people, mm-hmm. different life experiences. Uh, heck, one guy's even over, what do you say, over the hill? Is that what you say for old people? I didn't uh, say that. Well, that's what you called me. And we're the, him and I are the exact same age. He just looks better than me. <laughs> more fit than I am. Anyways, that's Rob. Um, what, what you guys are doing is incredible. I am so proud to work with you folks. Uh, I've said this before. I will continue to say this my entire career with you can use services. The heavy lifting gets done by the young people. That's the heaviest lifting because they're bringing change into their lives. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't even have those opportunities if the heavy lifting by our staff wasn't done. Yep. Um, unfortunately for you, Ken, this is the face and the voice of <laughs> you, Ken. Uh, the face for podcasting. And that's why I don't know why you put it on YouTube. But you, you folks are the ones that do the hardest work. My job is to promote us and to, to chase money and to chase partnerships and to get support. I can't do that unless you folks are doing what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for doing what you're doing. You're welcome. Not just as an employer, not just as, but just as a, <clears throat> as a human being to a human being. Yeah. You've taken your life and I, I appreciate you saying you wouldn't change a thing. Um, and that's actually a pretty big statement to me because of what you're doing now though. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for that. I thank you uh to your mom and dad me too every day i thank you i thank your sister also her yes because i believe that their love for you is unconditional and it's in its purest form mm-hmm. and i'm thankful that they never gave up on you me too very yeah. thankful and i couldn't you know what i couldn't be the person i am today without the family that i have and the support that i have for my family there's still hard days and there's still bad mm-hmm. days and mm-hmm. most of them are good but there's still those days where i need the support of my family and absolutely. they're always there absolutely because that's the thing about addiction and that pain is that it's relentless mm-hmm. so as relentless as you are to get out of it and to move forward from it and to now do your job as a relentless youth worker that pressure and those that that stuff is still relentless mm-hmm still there it's still there yeah. it doesn't just leave because i graduated one day <laughs> yeah i right? wish right. Yeah, it would be a lot easier if be it did a lot but, easier yeah so please take this in the most uncondescending way because i i don't ever want to come off the way but i'm very proud of you i'm very proud to know you thank you i'm very proud that you're part of this team and uh again i thank you for what you're doing um Folks, if you want to learn more about the Relentless Youth Outreach Program, go to our website, 
at www.youcan.ca. That's Y-O-U-C-A-N.ca. You can also buy an awesome Relentless t-shirt that Alana is wearing or one of these hoodies. Please support our relentless work in this community. Um, we would love you to become a monthly donor as well. And there's, there's benefits to that. Um, and we also have our, our uh, comedy nights coming up in March 2024 that we'd love you to support. Uh, you can find me at Kyle Dubay on Twitter and then the other stuff I don't even really use. So uh, thanks so much again, Alana, for being here and, and uh, being part of our team. Thank you for having me. It was a great experience. Until next time, everybody, be relentless. This series is proudly produced by the team at Road 55. Road 55 creates content that connects. For more information, check our website, www.road55.ca.